Here is one of a series of talks by spiritual leader Lola McDowell Lee, spanning two decades from the early 70s through the 90s. Lola was a Zen Roshi, whose Rinzai lineage included Dr. Henry Platov and renowned Zen master Shigetsu Sasaki. Lola was a religious scholar as well as an ordained Christian minister. While the talks are focused mainly on Zen and Buddhism, Lola drew on many spiritual traditions, including those of Jesus, Plato, Lao Tzu, the Hindu Vedas, Meister Eckhart, and Gurdjieff. Uh, you know, not long ago on Bill Bulkley's program, the, the firing line, they had a group of uh, men, let's see, there was a couple of professors of comparative religions, and um, Brother Stanley Rast, and who else? Somebody else. There were four of them all together. And one of them made the comment that in order to really understand your own religion, the one that you were reared in, the thing to do is to get out of it, study another one, preferably Zen, he said, and then uh, turn around and look at your religion and walk back into it, because now you would understand it. Hmm? So we look around <clears throat> at many different ones. Uh, some of us know where we want to be, and some of us are looking and, you know, sort of fishing around. And it is a good idea to um, see what other people believe, and why they believe it. <clears throat> and in um, and the, the Dalai Lama uh, was part of it, the, because they had a week seminar there at this... Uh, back east someplace at some college, and the Dalai Lama was there. Now, in the uh, Tibetan thing, <coughs> uh, there are several great teachers, uh, not necessarily the Dalai Lama, but one of them was named Tilopa, and one was Naropa, and one was Marpa, and the last great one was Milarepa. <coughs> now, uh, Tilopa wrote, Milarepa wrote a, uh, what is called uh, the Great Song of Milarepa. And uh, Tilopa wrote the, what is called a song also, they call them songs for some reason, the Song of Mahamudra. And a little bit of it goes, it's quite lengthy, but a little bit of it goes, in Mahamudra, all one's sins are burned. In the Mahamudra, one is released from the prison of this world. This is the Dharma's supreme torch. <coughs> Those who disbelieve it are fools, whoever wallow in misery and sorrow. To strive for liberation one should rely on a guru, and when your mind receives his blessings, emancipation is at hand. Now this word mahamudra, uh, a mudra is a, is a gesture, 
and the maha means great. So it is the great gesture, or it is, is called sometimes the great symbol, because after all, a gesture symbolizes something. You make a, do, you, you go like this with your hand and it, you know, what are you symbolizing? By, hmm? you're symbolizing something. So, and, and in the pictures of, of um, uh, Buddha, you know, the, with, the, with his, how his hands are positioned, and these are called mudras. Uh, the Mahamudra is a school, the great symbol school. It is one of the three schools of Buddhist, Buddhist philosophies in Tibet, or nowadays Nepal, because we don't really know what's going on in Tibet proper today. Hmm? There is uh, these three schools. The first is the Madhyamika school, which is called the Middle Way, <coughs> which was originated by the great Nagarjuna during the second century AD. And then we have this Mahamudra school, and then there is the Adiyogi school, which is called the Great Perfection. Now, followers of the Adiyogi school, the Great Perfection, are called the old style ones. And they are the ones that are known as the red caps. You know, over there, you're familiar with how they, <coughs> in, the, in the monasteries there, the lamas wear red caps or they wear yellow caps. And then there is a group that wear the black caps. <coughs> but the red caps, the old style ones, they adhere to the unreformed church, the church as it was handed down from tradition all the way from the Buddha. And the yellow caps oppose them. Similarly, as to the Protestants sort of oppose the Roman Catholic Church, there is this faction in here also. Now, this Tilopa, who wrote this particular song of Mahamudra, was a red cap, and he was called the first apostle, and he was the leader, the first leader uh, of in this school to insist upon practical application. You heard and then you applied it. You listened to a teaching, but you had to do something with it. Hmm? And he handed down his teachings orally hmm? yeah. to his disciple Naropa, who transmitted it to Marpa, and then Marpa to the great Milarepa. <clears throat> now, at one time, <clears throat> many, many years ago, there were hundreds, I mean hundreds of these red caps They're living in, the, in a, this real bleak solitude in the <coughs> Tibetan Himalaya Mountains. Hmm? Some of them lived in the caves on Mount Everest. Cold are uh, these hermits living in these caves. Huh? And in this silent, unpopulated, bleak, atmosphere, huh? where nature is today as it has been since antiquity. You know, these hermits in these caves, you know, never disturbed by any restlessness from the outside world, you know, and where their old ideas, you know, which they held, you know, 
were so different than those which governed men in, in the big cities, you know, where they had their rules in the big cities and their opinions, you know, about what success was and fame and fortune, you know. Their system, and they had quite a system, their system of mystical insight, you know, these realizations that they had, you know, were called Kaaba. And they were practiced in this mountain solitude. Now, if we were to compare these red caps to something in the Western world, uh, looking through the um, religions, we would come across what is called the Christian Gnostics. And very much in accord with the uh, Buddhists in general. The, the Buddhists and the Christian Gnostics do not have a doctrine of vicarious atonement. In both of these paths or faiths, you know, liberation, your freedom from your world depends entirely on one's own effort. And now, the Gnostics have the word Sophia, which is wisdom. And I think in Constantinople, what do they call Constantinople today? Oh, yeah, there is the uh, Hagia Sophia. There is the great temple of uh, wisdom. Sophia, wisdom, woman's name, Sophie, huh? Sophia. It is the same type of thing as we find in Sanskrit when we say pranya, which is wisdom. Hmm? They both uh, are a personified uh, female principle of nature, you know, which in Sanskrit is known as shakti. The uncreated, non-being, the body of all intelligence, the impersonal deity of Gnosticism or in Gnosticism, may be compared with the emptiness or the what is called the void of the Mahayana school of the Madhyamikas, that of Nagarjuna. Hmm? The supreme pleroma of light. Even the Church of Old Rome uses this. Not the Roman Catholic Church, but the, it, it is a, the Catholic Church of Old Rome. Oh. The supreme pleroma of light, huh? and the, you know, the, which is called the Pista Sophia, is like the beyond nature nirvana. See, these, these two are very similar. Now, okay? Now, within the six philosophies, or the six doctrines <clears throat> of India, there are two which are quite diverse from each other. One is the Samkhya system by Kapila, who is considered by some to be the most brilliant man who ever lived. And the other is Buddhism, Buddhism is considered a philosophy of India. 
in which we find this man, Nagarjuna, who is considered by some to be the most brilliant man who ever lived. See, you pays your money and you takes your choice all the way through life, whatever you believe. Huh? And whatever you believe, that's the outcome of it. I mean, that's what you're following along with. You know, you pays your money and you takes your choice. Now, the first, um, what is called an aphorism, the phrase in the Samkhya, runs like this. The supreme goal of life, all the little goals that we have, we're going to get up earlier tomorrow and we're going to sit a little longer and, you know, all these little nicky things we dig around with. Huh? Yeah. But the supreme goal of life is to put an end to the three kinds of suffering. You know, we go through. These three kinds of suffering are the pain caused by the diseases of the body and mental disturbances. Mm -hmm. And then there is the pain that is caused by extraneous sources, you know, other men or beasts. And we do remember that these uh, aphorisms were written a long, long, long time ago when the little villages were around and the tigers would run through and, and you know, that you could get picked up off end of you right pretty quick. So men and beasts was a cause of pain. Yeah. And then we have uh, the, also the pain caused by supernatural agencies. <clears throat> that is the planets. So I guess that would include astrology. Shapila believed in astrology. I don't know. Uh, or elements. Now that could be storms or weather too hot or the weather too cold or whatever, you know. It causes pain, doesn't it, William? David, cold causes pain, you betcha. <laughs> and every living being is in some way subject to pain. And none of us want it. No way do we want pain, and yet we're all subject to it. But the Samkhya goes on to say, every man has the power to get rid of it. Hmm? And it says that Samkhya, the system of Kapilas, can show a man how to do this. Um, because the usual methods that he tries are not sufficient. So you should try the Samkhya. And it says, only by right knowledge, which comes out of right discrimination between what is called the true self and the phenomenal self to be able to differentiate between the two uh-huh and what they called between parusha and pakrit only through knowing this only through this kind of discrimination can one get rid of pain Pain, anguish, misery, suffering, sorrow is found in Pakrit and not in the Purusha. Pakrit uh, and Purusha. Pakrit is the mother. Purusha, Purusha is the um, non-being. Is 
the true identity. Hmm? <clears throat> when, Kapila says, one experiences the Purusha, as separate from Pakrit, then comes an end to misery. Okay, misery. This is, we could say, my world, huh? My world. With what are we aware of my world? This is consciousness, huh? And then this I am is spirit. See, now to know the difference between these three categories, <clears throat> then you would be free of pain. Pakrit <clears throat> in Sanskrit, <coughs> in the world of Indian thought, is the world of thought and matter. Hmm? And so it is said that the Purusha, the spirit, is caught in matter and in thought and, you know, in the psyche and must be extricated therefrom. Bring him out of it, huh? So that you can see him for what he is. Right? However, Kapila's system is a dualistic system because he says that Purusha and Prakrit are on a par. They are ultimate realities, both of them. See, the true identity, the Purusha, and Prakrit, the primordial nature, are two realities, ultimately, forever. This Purusha, or this spirit, is independent of Pakrit, is not active, that is, it is called inactive. She is the one that is active, not him. And he is separate from her. But he is the, the prime mover. <clears throat> the great mother, or this Pakrit, contains within herself all the material of the universe, from the atoms up and down, all through the content of the psyche, you know. That's all the mother. States of matter, frequencies of energy, and this Purusha is like a magnet. And these different states of energy are like iron filings. And they, 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 they move or they fall into certain positions as, they are, as the iron filings are attracted uh, to the magnet. So therefore, certain personalities come about, uh, certain trees come about, uh, certain flowers come about. However, hmm? Hmm? It's, it's responding to a magnetic influence. This is Kapila. 
Now, I'm not saying you should believe this, but I'm saying this is the way the system goes, right? <clears throat> because of Purusha, everything takes form in mother because of states of mother. Hmm? Now, this Purusha, or this spirit, we should realize, not only to prove it, but to realize for ourselves, you know, that there is something that is distinct from, that is separate from all this changing phenomena, because this Purusha never changes. Okay? Now, the, the Prakrit has within herself uh, three main forces of energy, and they are in a state of equilibrium in her. You know, but like these iron filings, using it as a very crude analogy, they move around, and this is called transformation. The forces become this, and the forces become that, and the forces become, or the energy becomes something else. And they speak of it, you know, you are becoming this, you know, every day I'm getting better and better and better. You know, I'm refining myself, I am perfecting myself, <coughs> you know. A gradual process. Gradually I'm going to be perfect and gradually I'm going to realize. Yeah, this is the Samkhya system. Now, Nagarjuna's middle way is quite different. He says that the phenomenal and the transcendental, that which transcends the phenomenal world, have neither have a self-existence as a self-entity, as an entity, huh? self. Everything is empty, he says. Now, Nagarjuna is very difficult to understand, and on top of that, very, very little of what he has written has been translated into English. So... But he, in, in, once in a while you can find something that somebody else has translated from the Chinese or something like that. And he says, who is without possessiveness and who has no ego, he also does not exist. Hmm? When I and mine have stopped, there is neither an inner nor an outer self entity, self. Hmm? Primordial nature is empty. Nirvana is empty. The Dharma is empty. The power is empty. Causes are empty of self. Entity. Now, what kind of emptiness do you think he has reference to? Well, you can say this room is empty. 
I mean, we are taking up a very small portion of it. Huh? This is not what he has in mind. What kind of emptiness is Nagarjuna talking about? Then we come along to this thing for you who have been searching around and who have acquired some vocabulary. If everything is empty, what happens to your karma? This word karma keeps cropping up all over the place. You know, we should understand it. Uh, the term karma is used, has been used, and is used to designate a potential for a future existence as well as paying off the past actions. Karma is the road that I tread in order to become perfect. Huh? In other words, um, and we can say, well, or, or um, anybody can say, I have been a good girl, I have been a good boy, and I have nice things, and it's because I have been a good girl or a good boy. See, and I'm reaping the harvest thereof. Or if I have bad things happen to me, then I'm paying off my karma, you know, and I'm learning my lessons. This way we go, huh? It's that kind of an attitude. Stop and look at it for a minute, huh? To whom? Does that karma belong? Because, you know, we keep saying, well, I'm, I was such and such in a past life, and I'm paying for it now. Hmm? So let us say I lived 10,000 years ago. <coughs> Something not nice happened to me back there 10,000 years ago. Something not nice happens to me now. Was it because of that incidence 10,000 years ago? But the karma should belong to that person who lived 10,000 years ago, not to me. Why am I paying for somebody else's mistakes? Hmm? Hmm. I'm not that person. I'm me. You know? <coughs> To whom does karma belong? To the Purusha? To the spirit? That's impossible. Nothing touches spirit. Nothing that you say or think or do touches. Of course, you can woo them a little bit with an attitude of surrendering and trusting, but... Uh, does the karma belong to Pakrit, to the great mother? Does it belong to the atoms in the mother? Does it belong in the thinking? Does it belong in the feelings? <clears throat> Let us say that people tread the path until such a time arrived on this planet when one by one they cleared themselves of their karma, and there were only a handful of people around. 
Are they left with all the karma? This handful of people? Huh? What happens to the karma? I mean, stop and think a minute. All the things you hear, you know, think about it. Just don't swallow it and get indigestion and say, yeah, I'm on the path. You know, think about it. Karma means action. It's your volition to do something. We will something or we desire something and we act upon it. Karma ensues. You know what they say. Karma is the action. See? And certainly what we do has an effect. You know, if I walk out in front of a train, I'm going to be mangled. It would be stupid to think otherwise. My karma? Well, it's because I willed it. I did it. Hmm? <clears throat> now, our actions, our volitions, what we desire, and what we will, it conditions the body. Mm -hmm. But Narajuna says, all this is empty. And if all this is empty, now what? Now what are you going to do with it? Hmm? For Narajuna, there was one thing, and that was reality. That was the attainment of nirvana. And in that nirvana, in that reality, there is no self-existence. Self-existence. We say we exist. The self exists. Here we are. We identify it with the body. This self is existing. It's standing out. It's different than the space here. Hmm? Yeah. <clears throat> he just called it empty. The emptiness of Narajuna is not just nothingness, like this, you say that you think of this space as being nothing. And there's nothing here. How my hand goes right through it, I don't feel a thing. Huh? You think this is nothing. That's what you think. There's nothing you have as a concept. There's this tremendous something there. Anyway, Narajuna's system is monistic, one God, one reality. And he holds to sudden enlightenment. <coughs> now, in this sudden enlightenment, it says that small teachings teach you about actions. Great teachings do not teach you how to act. They teach you how to be. If you have to learn to be kind, if you have to learn to be considerate, by all means do so. Hmm? But let it be based on a kindness out of spirit hmm? and not just a sentimentality. See, hold a different focus of attention. Be considerate one to the other because we are all in this same boat together and we are all one spirit. You know my pumpkin story. Yeah. Conduct yourself with a focus held and on the moving focus. We do someday want to get out of kindergarten, don't we? Yeah. Learn to hold that focus. 
Our acts are by the millions, and I mean by the millions. Someday, take five minutes, five minutes is a long time, huh? And count how many actions in that five minutes, or even in one minute, and then multiply that by the hours, and by the days, and by the weeks, and by the years that you have been around. Huh? in this self-existence huh? by the millions because remember you have to count every thought and every feeling and every sensation every mood every gesture all has to be counted those are all actions now if they're not all correct actions. How are you going to pay for all of this? Huh? With your paying off your karma. And if I've got to pay off all of this, how in the world am I ever going to be liberated? Why, it's endless down there, huh? huh? I've got to suffer and balance every not nice act with a good act or a good thought. Well, there's no end. Hmm? Every day we have relationships in life, so we're piling up more and more and more and more and more and more. Where is this chain going to end? Well, maybe actions are not the question. Hmm? After all, we did act in ignorance. We did act when we were not aware of what we were doing. No. Like somebody said, we were drunk with ignorance. Yeah. And we were groping around in the dark. And we knock something over in the dark. We have to pay for that forever. Or 10,000 years from now. You know, a little kid, you know, he's playing in the living room. <coughs> and he breaks a vase that his mother holds dear. He has to suffer for it. He gets spanked. Okay, fine. But what about the good deed that he must do to compensate for the error that he made? This little bitty kid, you know, someday you got to go out and learn how to make vases. You know, we wouldn't have time to do all the things that we need to do to get even. So where are we going to turn? What are we going to do? What's the answer to the whole thing? Yeah? Very simple. It's really very simple. Just become aware. <coughs> Realize the awareness in here. Hmm? And I say aware, and I say it often. <coughs> but what is it? What is it? It doesn't mean, oh, I'm aware of a noise outside. That's consciousness identified with a noise. Huh? I'm aware of how I look in the mirror. Usually not so good, but then, huh? But the awareness. Have you ever looked in your eyes in a mirror? Have you looked in your eyes in a mirror? All of a sudden, something can happen. Hmm? And there's something there. Hmm? 
And that's not a self. Yeah. In the Mahamudra, all one's sins are burned. That simple, huh? In the Mahamudra, one is released from the prison of this world. <clears throat> when, when this awareness is, you say you looked in the mirror and you saw this, all the ignorance, all of a sudden is gone. You know, if somebody's asleep, okay, dreams exist. Yeah? That's what exists to consciousness then, dreams, huh? Not reality, unless you really are awake. Yeah? But they're dreams, no matter how real the dream may seem. Without this awareness, what does it mean to say, I am? Not much. No. You know, any moment, this moment, this very moment, a door can open. And the opening of a door is sudden. You know, it's like... Um, um, well, when a wind blows through and the door opens, you know, it opens with a bang. It's a sudden, like a sudden jump. It's like a leap. It's like, um, say you take an atom and there are different regions in an atom, let us say. There's areas, and it's almost as if there are little circles drawn in an atom, and these subatomic particles move around in this atom, around the center, around the nucleus. See, that, that holds, the computer system holds them there, down there, the iron filings. Huh? Uh, but a subatomic particle will appear in one region, and it disappears. And all of a sudden, it will appear in a different region. How did it get there? Yeah, just suddenly, it's it's in a different region. It is, it, it's in a, a region down here, and then it's a re in a region up here, which quite transcends the region here. It's a sudden. It's a leap. They call it a quantum leap, huh? Yeah. Yeah. At a certain temperature, water leaps and become steam. Hmm? The water doesn't come 5% and then 10% steam. No, it's water and then it's steam. When you are sound asleep and you hear a noise, immediately you wake up. You're awake. Your eyes may not open. Uh, but there's something in there that's now all of a sudden alert. You heard a noise. See, you're either awake or you're asleep. Yeah. If you heard an external noise, you're awake. Yeah. Is, doesn't it strike you as strange that sound asleep 
We can be aware of an external noise. You're not aware of how the bed feels. You're not aware of what you've done with the pillow. You're not aware of the room around you. You're not aware of whether you're snoring or not. But a slight noise, and you're awake. Isn't that strange? And all these other things you're not aware of. Yeah, are we really here? Are we really present? Where are you? Hmm? What woke up? A little noise. Something wakes up. What woke up? What came to life? Just the noise, that's all. You're not aware of anything else. And of course the noise has stopped, so now you're just awake. What came to life? Where was it before it woke up? What is it? Jiminy Crickets, it's you, you know. Don't you think you should know it? Hmm? When you do something, you know, you walk and you eat and you sleep and you do all kinds of things, huh? If, you know, once in a while you could do it. Don't be so focused on how you're coming across to somebody else, you know. Well, you know, what kind of impression am I making on this person that I'm talking to? You know? The food I'm eating is either enjoyable or it's not enjoyable. Instead of all of that, which is, you know, it comes and goes and comes and goes and comes and goes in your world, you know. How about focusing on you? That's consciousness, huh? You. Yeah. You don't need to wait for 8,640 lives to go by. You know, that's how the genes have got it all figured out to the nitty-gritty. That's how many lives a person has to live. You know, have an intensity about holding a focus. You know, bring, it, bring this intensity and this effort into understanding. You know, if it's a real intensity, all of a sudden in it, you know, this light all of a sudden springs forth. It's, it's like a flame that all of a sudden appears. It comes like lightning. It may go like lightning, so you've got to really focus in order to catch it as it goes by, huh? But in that moment, you can see, if you can hold it, that the whole past, your whole past is in front of you, and you understand it. You understand what's happened, and you understand what is happening. And all of a sudden, everything is very clear. It's just real crystal clear. It's as if you had been sitting in the dark and all of a sudden somebody brought a light and you can see the whole room. Hmm? In that light, everything in the past is so what? It's irrelevant. Hmm? It never belonged to you. 
So to whom does the karma belong? Hmm? It never belonged to you. To whom does it belong? Of course, it all happened. We have all done many things, good things and bad things. Some gave us peace and some gave us anxiety. But in this moment, all the past is burned. There's no karma and there's no self. And that's very difficult to imagine, that there isn't any self. But when one holds a focus and experiences this consciousness, you needn't be concerned at all, at all. Suddenly there is this, in what is called enlightenment, we are filled with light and you can see and suddenly there is this freedom. Suddenly that hand that was a fist is open. Hmm. Tilopa says that this is the Dharma's supreme torch, that those who disbelieve are fools who ever wallow in sorrow. And you notice he doesn't call them sinners and he doesn't call them irreligious, he just simply calls them fools. And further, he says that if you want to learn anything, learn to trust. See? If you are miserable, and so miserable that nothing seems to help, just trust. Hmm. Trust allows the new. Trust always allows. In this trust, you can set aside the control that you think you need. Hmm? When you come up to this barrier in yourself, this control, and you can see it, you're controlling something in here so that you must not allow something to happen. <coughs> nice barrier. What is it that you really want to control? Ask yourself, what is it that you really want to control? Control is needed only when you think you're pitted up against something. What are you pitted up against in trust? Nothing. So, let go. You just, just trust. The world was here long before you ever got here, and the world's going to be here a long time after we all leave. Huh? See, flowers bloom and trees grow and the moon shines and the sun sets and the sun rises and the sun sets and the sun rises. Trust it. And he says, alas, all things in this world are meaningless. They are but sorrow's seeds. Small teachings lead to acts, and one should follow only teachings that are great. <coughs> so small teachings tell you what to do, and they tell you what not to do. You know, do this, do that, think this, think that, thou shalt, thou shalt not. Huh? 
take those words if you must and then look deeper into them. There is another meaning and another meaning and another meaning and another meaning. Hmm? As I said, a great teaching is not concerned with what you do. It is concerned with what you are. It is concerned with being. So don't allow yourself to become a victim. Trust. Hmm? People say, you know, we are vegetarians. We think it shall lead to enlightenment. That's a small teaching. People say we practice celibacy. We think it shall lead to enlightenment. That's a small teaching. There's a lot of things we can do and think and say, but they do not touch that which you are after. It's only your world. God, we got enough of my world, huh? huh? By doing, we manage character. Oh, and we want to look as wise as possible, but that wisdom remains a decoration. A discipline from without is a decoration. Being comes from within, and you just allow it to grow and spread like a great tree. Hmm? It is difficult. <clears throat> People are afraid. Somewhere in there, you're going to run into fear. People are afraid of losing themselves, and they are afraid of surrender, and so they hold to these small teachings, because here now they have a control. Here they've got something to hang on to. Here they have got a log going down the river. Yeah? <clears throat> One can manage small teachings, you know? Not to eat this, and not to drink that, not to walk that way. You walk in this way, and you dress this way, and you don't dress that way. See, one can manage this, and one remains in control. But the great teaching is to surrender in trust. Hmm? And then let it take you, this force, wherever it's going to. If enlightenment is what you want, why are you afraid of it? This with one hand and that with the other. Yep. Life, they say, is like a river. Yeah. Where is the source of that river? The river moves to the sea, to the ocean, the whole, the totality of everything, huh? And it's already moving. All you have to do is go with it. This very moment, your destiny can be fulfilled. For what are you waiting? You know? Jump. Jump. Okay? If you find Lola's talks valuable, more will be posted in weeks to come.